right, this morning we are going to be in Psalm chapter 1, looking at, as Cole described, the practice, the spiritual discipline of Scripture. So Psalm chapter 1. We need like a cup holder. Boom, right there. All right. So Psalm chapter 1. Um... I love brisket. I really do. You folks here know I do. Love me some barbecue, beef rib. I don't, it's not that I don't like. I'm just indifferent and not real excited and kind of scoff at a ham sandwich. Right? I think about a ham sandwich like my typical ham sandwich that I eat is going to be like that cheap 98-cent Walmart bread that's got no nutrition to it. The mustard, when it comes out, is going to spray a little bit of that juice that comes before the mustard on the bread. And then the ham that we get because, you know, we're thrifty. My wife likes a good deal. It's the ham that comes rectangular, that has multi-colors of ham in it, and a little thin layer of, like, slime on it. You know what I'm talking about. And when you look at that, when you look at that, um, when you look at that ham sandwich, you're, you're not looking at it going, oh, I can't wait to eat that. It's just, it's just fuel to get through your day, right? It's just, but w- when you think about a brisket, I'm talking about something different. And the, the reason I'm talking about sandwiches and food is not just to make everyone hungry and really impatient for me to get done with the sermon so we can go eat. The reason I say this is because some, not some of us, I would say the majority of us have a tendency, have a tendency to look at the scripture more like a ham sandwich than we do brisket. We tend to see the Bible more as like a ham sandwich that we have to deal with, a ham sandwich that we would throw in the trash if anything better came along. And our lives bear this out. It's why, it's why you and I struggle to make the discipline of reading the Bible a reality in our life. It's why we struggle to spend time in the scripture. It's why we struggle to enjoy the scripture. It, it, it is, we use vaulted and lofty language about the Bible. We talk about it like it's brisket, don't we? It's God's word, right? It's infallible, inerrant, it is glorious. The Bible is everything in all of its glory. And yet, despite our lofty language, despite the language that we would use for something like brisket, we end up treating it and it ends up being in our life something like a ham sandwich. And for a moment, I want to just take a minute and wrestle with that reality and, and just think about why it is that we feel that way. Because... There's, there's good reasons why we feel that way. We're, it's, not, it's not like that just comes from nowhere. It's not like it just comes from some malice against God. Makes sense. It's a 2,000-year-old book written during the Bronze Age with stories that sound more like Marvel movie plots than your day-to-day life. It's weird. There are commands in it that make zero sense, that even seem morally repugnant. There are rituals that are just plain disgusting and weird, like sprinkling blood all over the place. There are names we can't pronounce. 
There are, it's written in languages that are dead to a people that no longer exist to a culture and in a culture that no longer exists. It's just foreign. It's weird. And it's really long. And in a lot of places, really boring. So it's no wonder that we're tempted to think it's like a ham sandwich than brisket. It's no wonder that we talk about it like it's honey on our lips, but treat it and in our lives, easily dismiss it and set it aside for a few more minutes of sleep or for whatever next video pops up on your feed and YouTube or Facebook or wherever you're at. It's not surprising that we would do this. Now, it's not my desire here this morning, not my intention to stand up here and demean or devalue the Bible to you. That's not what I want to do. In fact, I want to do the opposite of that. But I want to get to the heart of why it is that we struggle with the discipline of Scripture. I want to get to the heart of it. And that requires us looking this demon in the eye and contending with the reality that we do not believe what we believe about the Bible. That's pretty much what it is. We just don't believe what it is that we believe about the Bible. We believe it's God's word, but we just, we, we don't believe it. And that, if you read the scripture carefully, you, you'll know that this is, this is a common theme throughout scripture. People believe things that they don't really believe. This is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 prays to the church that he just talks about as being in Christ and in the love of Christ. He prays that they would know the love of Christ. Why, Why would he pray that people who know the love of Christ know the love of Christ? Because they don't believe what they believe. And that's that's our situation here. We don't actually believe what we proclaim to believe about the Bible. And so if that's the case... It's not going to be helpful for me or anyone to stand up here to give you some new strategy for reading the Bible. Here's 12 steps for reading the Bible well this year. It's not going to help you to just get a course on hermeneutics to be able to read the Bible better. It's not going to help you for me to stand up here and shame you into it either. We have to get to what's at the heart. And what is in our hearts is that Our experience and our interaction with the Bible seems far less impressive than the words we use to describe it. And we have to be able to manage that. And we need God's help. We need God's help badly to help us perceive that the Bible really is what we say about it and experience that to some degree so that we can be changed and be helped in our pursuit to discipline ourselves with it. So that's my goal this morning. It's my goal. I want to spend time, as we look at Psalm chapter 1, I want to spend time trying to do this, to help you see, maybe to just one degree more in your life, that the Bible is brisket, it's not a ham sandwich. And I believe that if we can do that, if we can grow in our in believing what we believe about the Bible, that that will make all the difference for you in terms of your discipline in reading the scripture. Because here's the reality. I will never get up at 3 a.m. to make a ham sandwich and look at it and long for it all day. But I will every day of the week get up and trim a brisket at 2 o'clock in the morning 
And then I'll smell the wood and and I'll think about it all day and I'll check the temp and I'll wrap it in butcher paper and then I'll do a little happy dance when it comes out of that butcher paper and I take the first bite. That is how the Bible is experienced by David through the Psalms. That's how God wants us to experience it. That's what is for us and I want us to get one step closer there. So Psalm 1 will help us. So stand with me as we read God's word. And hear what Psalm 1 has to say. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day And night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You can be seated in God's presence. Let's pray and ask the Lord for help this morning as we think through this. Lord, we ask now that the words of my mouth would be used by you, empowered by your word and by your spirit, to cause our hearts to perceive all the riches, the sweetness, and the delectableness of your word this morning. We need your help. In Jesus' name we ask this, amen. So Psalm 1, if you, as you read it with me, teaches us that the scripture's brisket. It's not a ham sandwich. It teaches us that it's all we have been salivating for throughout our whole lives. And my hope is that as we consider it, you'll come to believe this a little bit more. Psalm 1 is a Hebrew poem. It's a Hebrew poem. And as a poem, it's one of those reasons we tend to see the Bible more as a ham sandwich because it doesn't even rhyme. I mean, how many times have I heard this complaint about the Bible? It's got poetry that doesn't even rhyme. Again, it's because it's written by a very different culture with very different ways of expressing things. And in this poem, in, this, in, in, in Hebrew poetry in general, it's right. Words don't rhyme. It's not only because it was written in Hebrew, it's also because of the, the, the design of Hebrew poetry is not intended to do that. Instead, what you find are weird things that we don't see a lot, and we don't use this word a lot. It's called a parallelism. And here we have a, a triplet, a, a, tri, you know, a triplet parallelism, where Paul is comparing things, and may, or not Paul. I said Paul, didn't I? Not Paul. I'm in the New Testament too much. <laughs> We see, we see the writer of this psalm making comparisons and using repetition to make a point. And in, in this psalm, he's making, drawing a contrast, drawing a contrast between two different kinds of people. He's setting up a contrast, a dichotomy, two different lives, the blessed life and the wicked life. The blessed man, the blessed woman, and the wicked Man, the wicked woman. And we find that the blessed and the wicked have two different kinds 
of lives. And so let's, let's, let's see this. Verse 1, the very first line is, blessed is the man. This is talking about a blessed person. Could also be translated as happy. Could also be translated as joyful. This is the happy life. This is the joyful life. This is the blessed life. The blessed man. Filled up with satisfaction. A person settled in their own skin. They're blessed. Their life is good. Things are well with them. And we see the degree to which it is in verse 3. That they are flourishing in their life. This is a blessed person whose life is marked by flourishing fruit and prosperity. We see that clearly in verse 3. He is like a tree, strong, rooted, planted by streams of water where there's plenty and provision and sustenance that yields its fruit in its season. It's productive. Its leaf does not wither. It doesn't shrink up and shrivel up. There's no winter. Imagine that. No winter, no time of not producing. It is healthy. And all that he does, he prospers. This is amazing. This is, this is the life we all long for. This is the life we dream about. This is brisket. This is what we do happy dance for. This is what we long for. We pursue this. We all want this. And this is what Adam and Eve had in the garden in the beginning of the scriptures prior to their fall in sin. They had this productive life. And what you see here is basically the image of a garden. You basically see the image of this Edenic paradise here. And this is what marks the person, who, uh, the blessed person. This is what marks their life. The blessed man not only lives in paradise, but he produces and brings that new crea- that creation, the new creation to the world around him. Prospering and bearing fruit. What simply could be better than that? What could be better than that? What kind of life could be beyond that? It's so good it seems beyond reason. And yet we see this contrast then in verse one as well. It's not only talking about the blessed man, but he talks about the wicked. And you see that comparison there, and here we see one of those Hebrew parallelisms, where he describes the wicked in three different ways. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And we see this parallelism, three lines that are basically saying the same things with a little bit different wording to give nuance and to give color to what he's talking about about the wicked. In verse 4, he comes back to this and he says, the wicked are not so. Wicked, sinner, scoffer, these terms. Sinner and scoffer, kind of, these terms kind of work like, um, like nuancing different colors of what it means to be wicked. A sinner is someone who rebels against God, rebels against authority, they twist and pervert truth. And then scoffer gives us a little bit different color. A scoffer, we don't use that word very often, it's not a very common word that we use, but essentially what it means is someone who turns their nose up at something with a little bit of disgust. My wife and I were out having a drink with some friends, and as we're sitting there in this bar on the TV up behind us, or behind the couple we're sitting across from, I see a TV screen, and a press conference comes on. 
And in this press conference, my beloved Cubs catcher, Willie, Willie Contreras is sitting there and he now has on a Cardinal shirt. He got traded. I didn't expect it. It, I didn't, I did, I knew it happened and I grieved in my heart about it, but I, I wasn't prepared to see it. And when I did, my wife will tell you, I scoffed. I was like, ugh, ugh, turn it off, get it away. I can't see it. <laughs> That's scoffing. And what you, and the uh, silly illustration, but the point is, is that someone who scoffs looks at something with a degree of disgust. They look at something and they feel an inner sense of, ugh. And this describes the wicked person. They not only rebel against God, they not only rebel against his purposes, but they find it gross. God's gross. His ways are gross. I don't want anything to do with them. And then verses 4 through 6 explains to us what that kind of life looks like, what it produces. If the blessed person is basically in paradise, what does the wicked person's life look like? Well, it says there in verse 4. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Which means, essentially, that their life is meaningless. It's, it's, It's in vain. Chaff is the little husk. Little husk, very light husk that lives on the outside of a grain of wheat. And when it is lying on the ground, a slightest breeze will pick it up and carry it away like it's nothing. It's like a mist. It's nothing. It's light. and It's inconsequential. And it's what he says the wicked's life is like. It is inconsequential. It is vain. It accomplishes nothing productive unlike the blessed man. But then he says in verse 5, he goes on and says they're not going to stand in the judgment. In other words, they may be rebelling against God, but they're going to be brought to their knees. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And here what you have is an image of community. People gathered together. And they're not going to be among them. They're going to be out in darkness. Separated from community, isolated and alone. And then verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God doesn't know their way because he's not been down their path. They don't know, they aren't on the path that God knows. And death creeps into their life. Death surrounds them. That's what the, that phrase, the way of the wicked will perish. They're not among the congregation. They're sent out of the garden. Their life is not in paradise, but it's outside of the presence of God, in isolation and alone. And they disappear as if they're nothing. This is, this is a nightmare. This is an absolute nightmare of a scenario. And we've all known, maybe have been, or even are this person. People in our lives who we, the very common phrase that we use today is someone who's toxic. The kind of person that scoffs at their friends and their family and at God. The kind of person that stirs up division. The relationships are marked by quarreling. The relationships are marked by uh, retreating and isolation. 
And they live in kind of darkness, alone and sad, and feel and experience the meaninglessness of this. And there's no, there's, it's not, it it shouldn't be um, surprising to us that Jesus would describe hell this way, as outer darkness and isolation and alone. So you have this picture then, this contrast, the blessed man in paradise, the wicked man in a kind of hell. And you got this horrifying, scary contrast. But what we haven't touched on is what leads to these two different outcomes. What we, what we haven't mentioned, and you probably already know by implication, is how these two outcomes come to be. And what's interesting is the way this psalm describes it, because it describes it as a kind of attention that a person has in their life. What they give their attention to is what leads to these two very different outcomes in their life, to these two very different kinds of experiences in the world. Two very different kinds of attention. We see that the blessed man does not give his attention to the things and life and input of the wicked. His attention is directed something somewhere very different. In verse 2, it tells us that his attention is given to the law of God, which is another way of saying the Bible, the scripture. And when... When the scripture here gives us this idea of of focusing our attention, I'm reminded, um, just to give us the the degree of attention that is being depicted in this this text, well, it can really only be illustrated by my father again. And I promise that my sermons are not just going to be commentary on my father's hunting experiences. It's not where I'm going, but this just is too rich and too helpful to avoid. And he's not here to be embarrassed by this, so he'll have to listen and hear. My father experienced this in his own life. He um, is a deer hunter, if you weren't here last week. He was in his deer stand with his bow, and he was using his bow to hunt deer during the rut, which is basically the time when deer mate. And the bucks, the male deer, get very interested in the females and are very, very upset when they hear another male deer in their area and they want to fight them. And so hunters will carry with them what's called a grunt call, which mimics the sound of a male deer so that these other bucks will come in and fight one another and it gives them an opportunity to get a shot. Well, my dad has his, has his grunt call on his, around his neck so he can have it at the ready to use, and he's using it, and he's telling me, oh, I called this deer in forever. It came in from ever, forever away. It gets in front of him, and as it does it, he's got his bow drawn back, focused, attention tight on this deer. He drops the grunt call from his mouth and does not realize because his attention is focused, the grunt call falls over the string, and as he releases the arrow, his whole body goes with it, and the arrow goes down into the dirt, and he nearly comes out of the deer stand and misses the deer, never has a shot, doesn't get it, it's just a tall tale that he tells everybody with great distress. <laughs> and I, could just, I just had this picture of my dad going through all of this in the tree, and it just makes me laugh. 
But the point is, in, in, in that story and what we see here in the scripture, is that we give our attention to things that matter to us. And we give very focused, clear attention to the things that matter to us. We don't give very much attention to things like ham sandwiches, which is why I don't throw the bread in the trash when that little juice comes out of the mustard bottle. I just eat it and deal with it. But brisket... There's a lot of attention there. Attention that would get, cause me to fall out of a tree if I'm not careful like my father. And the same with deer hunters. They experience the same thing. Attention focused directs and shapes our life in a certain direction. It shapes our life in ways that we can't imagine. And here, what we see very clearly in verses 1 through 3 is that the blessed man has a different kind or different different point of focus with his attention than does the wicked man. His attention is given to the law of God. The law, those scriptures. He gives disciplined, focused attention to what God has said. Rather than scoffing at it, turning his nose up at it, and finding it gross or unpalatable, he delights in it. Rather than rebelling against it, he accepts it and conforms to it. He stands with the law of God. Look at, look at how he talks about the way in which uh, the, the, the blessed man does not engage with the attention of the wicked. Notice the words there. Walks, stands, sits. You get the picture there of a person's whole life. Every posture available to them. Their whole life is given attention. And rather than walking, standing, and sitting in the counsel of the wicked, he is walking, standing, and sitting in the word of God, in God's law. And we know this because of the way it's modified in verse 2. That he thinks about it, he meditates upon it day and night. It dominates his attention. At 2 o'clock in the morning, he wakes up, and like me going after brisket, he thinks about the law of God. He relishes in it. He, del- he finds in it something sweet and glorious. His attention is given to it. Full attention. And he does this over time. He does this over time, and his life takes shape because of it. And he becomes, as it were, a mini version of the Garden of Eden. A new creation, a little outcrop of heaven on earth is what comes. He bears fruit, he's filled with delight, he's filled with joy, he's filled with happiness, and this dominates his life. So know this, know this, if you want a life of flourishing and joy in Jesus, there's one way, delighting yourself in God's word. Meditating on it day and night. Disciplining yourself daily. Reading, meditating upon, devouring, tasting, consuming the scripture as if it's brisket. But there's three three implications that I'm going to run through. And I've got plenty of time to do it. Yes. Three things, three implications this has for us. This is great. 
sounds great. Let's meditate on the law of God. We still feel like it's a ham sandwich. Said a lot of great things, right? Oh, man, it's going to lead us to paradise. It's, it still feels like a ham sandwich. What do we do with that? We need to know Jesus is the blessed man in whom we find our blessedness. Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm chapter 1. And we need to hear that. All of us fail to give proper attention to God's word as we ought. And we're too often encumbered by the death of our attention being diverted to things in this world. We know it because we feel it because of the, I mean, the Facebook algorithm or the algorithms online, they know what we find to be brisket. And it just, it just sucks us in, right? And if it were up to you, if it were up to me, we would never find flourishing and joy because reality is our default mode in our flesh is to scoff at God's word, look at it like a ham sandwich, and move on to what we think to be bigger and better things. That's, just, that's, that's the reality of our lives, many of our lives. But there's good news. There's good news here because we are not, God does not leave us in a hopeless condition where the way of the wicked would define us. Apart from God's grace, that, that this likely would be our end, all of us. But there's good news. God has not left us in our ignorance. He has sent his son Jesus, who delighted himself in the law of God. Jesus practiced the discipline of scripture. He studied it from his youth. We know this from the Gospels. Jesus engaged in Bible study in his youth to the point where as a kid, he was going into the temple and debating the leaders of the Jewish community, teaching them what to believe and teach about the Bible. He memorized it. We know that because as he's out doing battle with Satan in the desert, which is just like one of the most epic chapters of the Bible, Jesus is literally battling Satan in the desert, and he does it by quoting scripture at him because he memorized it, he knew it, he debated the scripture, he taught the scripture, he used it to bring healing to people, raise people from the dead, deliver them from demons. He used it when he was hanging on the cross, paying for our sin. He disciplined himself in the scripture, and he didn't just discipline himself in it. He spent time meditating on it and chewing on it and savoring it like it was brisket in his mouth, like honey on his lips. He used it to say, he used the scripture to save us from sin. And he is the fulfillment of this. He is the blessed man. And we know this because Jesus rises from the dead as new creation. And from him comes the fruit of salvation that we all get to walk in. New life, new hope, new hope, flourishing forever flows from him. He is the man of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is Jesus, which is Hopeful for us because what that means is we don't have to approach Psalm 1 as if it depends upon us to realize the hope of it. We don't have to take that world upon our shoulders because if we did, we'd just fail. 
And what's so helpful, Theoden helped me with this this last week. Luke chapter 24, verse 44. This passage in Luke chapter 24. I've always known that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the fulfillment of the Psalms. But I always just miss this little nugget in Luke 24, verse 44. Is it up on the screen? Looky here. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. This is Jesus talking. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and what? The Psalms. are fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled this for us. And he wants you to know that. You might feel discouraged that you would not be the blessed man in this text. And you're right. You're not on your own. But there's glorious news. Jesus is... And he invites you into his flourishing with him to transform you and change you and bring new life and new creation out of you as you come to him. Your delight in God's law then is a delighting in Jesus and finding your hope and your flourishing and your happiness in him. Not as the means to your own self-attained joy. And rather than this relieving you of the discipline of God's word, it frees you to engage it, knowing that your flourishing is already guaranteed and that it's already won for you in Jesus, so you never have to fear being caught up with the wicked. So you can feast freely and glut yourself on God's word without fear here. Psalm 1 should not stand over you as a Christian, as some angry school mom threatening you. It's calling you to joy in Jesus, which is amazing. The second implication is this, that it is good and it is right to pursue the Bible as a means to pursue a life of flourishing. It's good and it's right to be motivated by wanting to flourish by coming to the scriptures. Why read the Bible, you might ask. One answer, because it's your duty? Sure, it is. But it's not just that. There's more than that. God created you for the purpose of delighting in him. He created you for the purpose of enjoying him. He created you so that you would flourish. And what this means is that you can and you should have a motive behind reading your Bible. You can and you should have a motive for doing that. When I cook brisket, I don't cook brisket just so that there's food on the table. I do it because I look forward to that little happy dance when I take it the first bite. And God wants you to do that when you read the Bible. It is not just something God says to do, just do it and shut up and do it. He does it because he wants to bring joy and flourishing in your life. And you can accept that as a legitimate, real motive. And some Christians have a very hard time with that. They think they need to have some, some lack of self-interest when reading the scriptures or obeying God. And God never in the Bible just says, do it, and doesn't give you some kind of self-interested motive. It's some weird, actually it's from Immanuel Kant. Anyway, we won't go into all that. You don't care about the philosophical history of it. But there's a reason why we Westerners don't want to think, we want to think that we can't have self-interest when we pursue obedience to God. And it's not biblical. It's a secular philosophy that has infected the mind of the church that's really harmed us. And what you need to know is that God designed you to have a self-interested motive in obeying him and engaging him, and it's your joy in him. 
The two are not different things. They're not separate realities as if your joy in him was somehow fight against his glory for himself. They're one reality. They can be one married reality. And what God wants you to do when you see the scripture is to look at it and say, oh, I get a happy dance with that. I, that's honey on my lips. And that brings him more glory than if you just merely obey him because, well, that's just what you got to do. John Piper says it better than me, but that's, that's, that's what it is. So do you want to be happy? Do you want to flourish? Then make reading the Bible a discipline in your life. Jesus doesn't just say, pick up your cross and follow me. He says, do you want to live? Then pick up your cross and follow me. Do you want paradise? Then pick up your cross and follow me. That's why the covenants are filled, filled with blessings if you obey them. It's why God is constantly putting his joy before it. It's also how Jesus obeyed God. When Jesus is on the cross, he's not merely saying, well, this is just what God does. He's saying, no, there's joy out in front of me that I'm going to pursue. And so in Hebrews 12 too, God wants you. He demands that you come to him finding joy and paradise in him. And so the, Engaging the scriptures is not just a duty for you to do. Engaging the scriptures here, as verse 2 says, is a delight. It's a delight. There is a brisket kind of happy dance in it. And then last, and I think this is, I hope this is helpful for someone this morning. This is a process. It is not something that happens in a moment in a person's life. Look there at verse two or verse three. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. Uh, my wife and I, we planted a tree in our yard a few years ago. That thing still is not throwing shade in my yard. We gotta wait years for that to happen. And it's irritating, frustrating, and there's a little bit of anxiety. When is it gonna happen? And is this winter gonna be the one that kills it off? Right? But it grows a little bit, just not enough for me to feel satisfied with it. Know this this is how God is shaping you in His Word. When you come to it and you're like, what the heck am I reading? What are all these silly names and these long genealogies? What in the world is up with Paul saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that threshing out the grain, that the oxen threshing out the grain is uh, being allowed to, to thresh the grain while he does his work is the reason why pastors should be paid. And that's what Moses really meant when he wrote that law. I've been studying the scripture for 20 years, more than that. And that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Where did Paul come up with that idea? I can make no logical sense of that. It frustrates me. And I'm like, Paul, what are you doing? I, can't, I, don't, I don't know how to deal with it. Or when you read... 
Read uh, some of the Psalms, imprecatory Psalms, where they're calling for the destruction of enemies. Or you just read Joshua and you're like, whoa, there's a lot of blood there. Or you just look at the tabernacle and God's pleased with blood being spilled. Like these things are hard. And God puts us in a situation where we don't find all of the glory at one moment. There's a process. We're like little trees that frustratingly grow small. Little bits over time. And so if you're struggling with with finding the scripture to be honey on your lips, to be brisket in your mouth, be patient. Be patient. God seems to be weirdly interested in doing things that I find irritating, which is not giving me everything I want in a moment. He is very comfortable happy for you to struggle through it and to come through it. And the reality is that's a really good thing because what that means for you is that there are millions upon millions of little tastes of brisket for you forever to enjoy. I am, I've learned to be really happy that I don't understand 1 Corinthians 9.9. But I know that one day I will And I'll do a little happy dance when I figure it out. I know that just like Theoden, when he brought up Luke 24, 24 last week, I knew that the Psalms were fulfilled in Jesus. But when he said it, I literally, and everyone in my community group could attest it, I literally did a happy dance in our living room. I was excited. It was like, oh my gosh, there it is. I knew it, but I didn't know it. And what this means is that God is giving us something like an adventure of exploring him and knowing him and experiencing little incremental bits of the reality of who he is. And every little bit of it satisfies our soul and at the same time transforms us into those works of new creation, which is just incredible. It's literally the best of all worlds. So, be patient. You're on a long, exciting, never-ending adventure ride. And you'll forever get to take greater, take in greater and greater glories as you, as you not only learn more as you read the scriptures, but as you are transformed into the image of God through the scriptures. And that, if you haven't already concluded this, is better than brisket. It's better. It's better than anything in this world. So why as a church are we going to discipline ourselves in the reading of scripture? It's not just because we want to look like academic scholars who've mastered an ancient book. It's because there's joy and new creation in it. So let's pursue that as Jesus did and be like him in that way. Let's pray and ask his help to do so. God, we confess that uh, we are tempted to just be frustrated sometimes with your word because it's hard. And we'll admit that sometimes reading it feels boring. We We know, though, that it's not. It's our ignorance and our foolishness and our just hard-headedness and smallness. 
that lead us to these conclusions. But I pray this morning that your spirit would give us just even one degree further an awareness of all the glory that there is so that we would be encouraged to delve even deeper and more profoundly into your word together. In Jesus' name we pray and ask this. Amen. Tell me about the smell. What's the smell in this apartment?